My big aspirations is for this organization to be viewed as the arbiters of knowledge and testing and information for digital registration and mobilization programs across the country for anybody. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Today's guest is Tatenda Musapatiki, a digital politics professional who returns to the show to talk about her new enterprise, which is aimed at registering to vote people from underrepresented communities. It's called the Voter Formation Project. We spoke about her precursor effort, which she did under the acronym banner in 2020, and why she's gone out on her own as a political entrepreneur, what VFP will be doing, and other reforms she thinks ought to take place in the progressive digital politics space. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Tatenda Musapatiki. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. So, Tatenda, welcome back. I always ask people to give me a quick biography. In your case, we've had a full episode before to talk about what you've been up to. So, like, introduce yourself and tell me what's happened since we last talked, which was like spring of 2019. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I am Tatenda Musapatiki. I am the CEO and founder of the Voter Reformation Project which is the big thing that has happened since we last chatted. Um, I have spent over a decade in the space, um, really sitting in between, I would say, the progressive political campaigning sphere, technology, and digital communications. And so in my career, I have been at nonprofits. I have been at consultancies. I have worked at companies, most notably at Facebook, where I was the client solutions manager for democratic politics during the 2016 presidential election and the 2018 midterms. And then I left to go to an organization called Acronym, where I built a $12.5 million program that targeted African-Americans and Latinas across eight states in order to um, increase the electorate and expand participation among these two demographics. And after Acronym, I wanted to continue to grow the work. I wanted to build out more programming and have the work that I did live in its own organization. And so I started the Voter Formation Project, which is a 501c3 that is dedicated to turning out and mobilizing and increasing the registration of people of color and people from underrepresented communities across the country. So let me first ask you a bit about what you did under the acronym banner. Uh, One, where'd you come up with $12.5 million? That seems like a good chunk. (laughs) It was a good chunk. And I'd I'd 
I've sold things for a very long time. My first jobs were always in sales environments and I worked at Facebook as a salesperson. And it turns out fundraising is selling. It is essentially selling your program and your product. And so we were fortunate enough to be able to raise $12.5 million from a constellation of very generous individual donors and foundations. How much of that was you? How much of that was acronym itself? Like, how did that all happen? I raised the $12.5 million uh, mostly um, in the spring and summer of 2020. If I'm being honest, I would say that the coronavirus and the shift to digital really played a strong role in that. I do not think we would have been able to raise that amount, frankly, in that short of a time. However, the world drastically changed and the ways that we traditionally had been doing voter contact and registration programs was completely upended. And we happened to have the expertise to help fill in some of those gaps and really grow our program to to be able to take action in terms of registration and mobilization when many programs could not. So while I don't wish that was the case, frankly, like I would much prefer we were in a normal environment, I think that really did accelerate our ability to, to fundraise. Talk about that expertise. How did you spend the money and what were the results? Sure. So we focused on digital marketing. And when I say digital marketing, I specifically am talking about ads and influencer campaigns. When I say influencer campaigns, we mean that we paid people to create content that is in their voice and in their style um, so that we could push that content to our audiences, either through ads or allowing that influencers network to organically receive the messages that we had paid for. And we take a different approach than many organizations. I would say While at Akron and building this program and the ethos that we have carried over to Voter Formation Project, many groups that do online voter registration and mobilization programming were following almost a set playbook whereby you run your digital advertisements right before the deadlines and or between like the last week of September to the deadlines. You run your mobilization campaigns either while people are voting through mail programs or you do it a few weeks leading up to the election. And that certainly is a way that you can engage people. But from what I've learned about commercial marketing from my time at Facebook, what I have studied about people's, the the psychology of marketing, it takes people a long time to make decisions. And they have multiple touch points when they are making those decisions. And if you think about how it is that companies like, I guess use Tide as an example, like you know who Tide is. It is a laundry detergent company, but they're not top of mind because they just sat back and their product happened to be the best. They are top of mind because they spend millions and millions of dollars advertising their brand, advertising their favorability, pushing out to people across print, radio, television, digital, that Tide is the best detergent and they try and get themselves to win awards and they go to mothers who are on the internet and have them use their Tide products. Tide is top of mind for me because I follow a cleaner on Instagram. I love clean talk and they all use Tide, for example, but there's a strategy and that strategy costs money over time. They don't expect people to just purchase Tide because they heard it's a good idea right before a sale. And we don't do that same type of full funnel marketing in the political industry. It takes time for people to decide about a candidate, but we don't do any work trying to convince people to participate in the process because it is our process. And so we wanted to start out developing content earlier. So running ads well before the election, months ahead of the election, and not just stressing that the election is coming up and people vote, 
but trying a variety of different messages, including information to let people know that there's an election, to encourage people about helping their community through the election, to say that it's good for democracy, et cetera, to see if any of those treatments made a difference and how it was that we've got people who would otherwise not vote to vote. So Tide is owned by Procter & Gamble, which, I don't know, spent over $4 billion in 2019 in advertising. Is that the right model? Is that a good fit for this space? How do you know if it is? We have to experiment. I, I think it's inconclusive to, to tell the truth, and I, I have a hunch that it can work, but I don't also think that this is necessarily the approach that a cash-constrained campaign should be taking either, right? There is a C3 nonprofit sector for a reason, and I think that a lot of this experimentation and work should probably live there until we have cost-effective models that could be adopted for more direct actions. But there is very little experimentation about the long-term effects of digital advertising on shifting attitudes about voting. There's even less research about doing that focused on communities of color. And there's even less research looking at if you layer those modalities of, if I'm going to layer long-term field and long-term digital communications, can that be most effective? And we're trying to fix that because I think we're losing out on a huge opportunity to bring people into the space and bring people into civic participation because we've been limited by perhaps this idea of a cost per net vote when the sector I'm in doesn't need to be thinking necessarily about the lowest cost per net vote or democratic vote. That's just not what we're here to do. We're here to make our society better through increasing participation. So do you think you increased participation and how? Yes. Yeah, so we ran a series of studies and I think it's fun to have these debates across the space. If you look at our results overall, we did not have statistically significant lift um, through our registration and mobilization programs. But when you break it down by demographic, we saw that we had huge success with certain demos and less success with others. And so while some could say this treatment didn't work and we need to look to other avenues, it worked with certain people. And so what happens when we adjust the treatments for the people who it didn't work for so that we are able to see or possibly see lift amongst all of the communities? I think there's this very inherent idea that we need to have best practices that work for everybody across the space. And if this treatment doesn't work for everyone, it doesn't work. And that's just not the case. We need to be thinking about what works for who. And once we understand what works for who, then we're more likely to see overall statistically significant results. So if I know that my program worked really, really well with African-American women, it worked somewhat well with African-American men. It did not work well with Latinas who were in the Southwest in Texas and Arizona, and it worked moderately well with Latinas who were on the East Coast. So that says to me, we need to figure out what might work better for Latinas in the Southwest. And I think Spanish language would be a huge part of that. We did not run Spanish language content, which was a mistake. And we need to figure out what treatments or what messages might resonate better with African-American men. And once we run these individualized, or not quite individualized, but segmented treatments, we'll start to see statistically significant lift across an entire program. And so that's what we're really setting out to do. What kind of feedback did you get from your funders, from uh, your colleagues? You put, an, I'm assuming, an awful lot of effort into this. You were participating in a very important election, which has got to be rewarding to be, to be in the fight. But what kind of feedback did you get? 
I would say overwhelmingly positive. The most common refrain that I heard was people were really, really impressed with our transparency. We released a 30-page report. You can find it at the Voter Formation Project website that detailed our results. You know, the statistically significant, the not statistically significant, the negative statistically significant. We also rigorously documented not just our process, but our approach, our thought behind it, what we believed worked, what we think people should toss aside, where we would like to be challenged. I would say I had never seen anything in the space like it, which is why I was determined to create it, because there is no, frankly, right now, transparent standard of how digital campaigns for this work should be run or across comparison. So I would invite anybody running a program to do the same, because I think we have nothing to lose by having more transparency about how it is we're running our programs. If I had to think of the drawbacks or the the negative feedback would be just that we don't think digital should work or, you know, there are a lot of people who believe that field should be first. And I actually don't disagree with them, especially in a competitive campaign environment if you have constrained resources. I think there's still this tension where people believe that it's digital or field because we are operating in what I think is a faux resource constrained environment. There are resources out there. It's just a matter of how we hopefully are able to unlock more of them for everyone. And so I think that would be the biggest contention. But overall, there was a lot of very positive reception to the work and how we reported it out. It strikes me it wouldn't be that easy to test for success. (laughs) It's really hard. (laughs) How did you design these tests? Who did you work with? And how do you know that the tests are, are really getting the results that capture reality? The way I'm going to answer this is kind of give a little bit of education and then move forth because it's, it's not as simple as you would think. So overall for the results, randomized control trials are the gold standard of how we you know, deliver and understand how we run our programs. And so we did have a holdout across our registration and mobilization programs. Acronym had an in-house team who helped us um, create the holdout. A holdout being a a randomly selected people that don't get the treatment? Correct. Yeah. Um, And so we held that holdout across every single one of our ad campaigns. Um, And then the data team that worked on my program was able to um, do the analysis of the actual who voted, who did not, who registered, who did not. And then I would add a special shout out to Kate Duke, who was kind of an informal advisor through that process and took a look at our stuff as we did it. And she did not need to do that. And I am eternally grateful for her partnership. We did most of it in-house for the RCTs. But another thing and where digital can get confusing for a lot of people is that when you measure the results of digital campaigns, It is very hard for you to know the full impact of your campaigns because you don't get data back on who it was who saw your ads. So when you build your actual holdout, the people who aren't seeing it, there are different levels you can build that holdout on. Every single one of them has a drawback, but the commonality between it is that you are going to get results that grossly underestimate your impact. So when we deliver our RCT results, we're actually saying this is the minimum impact that we had. And we most likely saw more impact because we held a tiny holdout. However, we ran the ads to millions and millions and millions of people. I don't think it's necessarily as effective or accurate to say that we only saw, you know, a tiny percentage percent of lift amongst our holdout group. Sure. 
but also knowing the problems with individual level matching that occur on platforms. It's not 100% accurate, which means that you are diluting the people who were in your control and in your test. That makes it hard. The other thing that helps, makes it more difficult to understand digital results is that oftentimes results that are delivered are in terms of the metrics of the media delivery, which can mean different things across platforms and can sometimes not even indicate results of your program. You're just sharing a metric. And so what we tried to do was separate we ran these digital experiments to understand how the media performed on the platforms, but we ran these randomized control trials to see the impact of the overall programs among communities. And we tried to do an analysis of bringing the two together to say, these pieces we think works best with these communities, and this is why we saw the lift. These pieces of our experimentation didn't work well. That way we got a more clear picture of not just the RCT and not just the digital, because both truly matter and how you run your media directly impacts the results you'll see always. And that's one thing about digital where it's not just like TV, you can run a TV ad and it appears. How you buy your media, the choices you make with your creative will change your experimentation results 100%. I would also imagine that a presidential election year might be the hardest year to demonstrate a lot of change just because there's so much attention. There's so many other factors driving whether people participate or don't or register or don't that, you know, this is just one thing in a big stew. Yes. And it's a very crowded media environment. Yeah. Do you anticipate that working similarly in a, in a midterm, you might be able to, you know, have more effect? I think so. I, I hesitate to say that though, because when you buy your media, it's at a state level. And sometimes in midterms, like take a state like New Hampshire, <laughs> um, where it's a tiny population, in a midterm election, you can still have three statewide seats up, maybe on occasion. It still makes it difficult. So yes, maybe, but I, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that people turn out at the same level so we have the same levels of difficulties. But as we know, that's less likely to happen. How does uh, acronym feel about you taking this outside of the organization and starting your own thing? How did they react to that? Or how did, how did you negotiate that? Tara was incredibly supportive. <laughs> you know, I think people could imagine that being a tough conversation and it really, really wasn't at all. She was curious about what I was thinking for my next steps. And I was just like, you know, I think this is what's next for this program and my career. And she was like, I've been in this exact position. Let me know how I can help you. So extremely supportive and and very gracious and, and just advocates of the work and me. I remember in our first interview, you said something about not loving bureaucracy. One of the things that, you know, working in a bureaucracy, one of the things that you can do by starting out on your own and being the boss is you can create the kind of organization that you really want. Tell me about how you're going about that now. I love it. Um, I really do hate bureaucracy and I really hate rules and I don't like being managed often. Props to everyone who's had to do it. And so it's been really lovely. And one thing that I have set out to do, aside from run the best digital programs in the space, which I strongly believe that I do, is set out to have an organization that people love to work at. 
And it's been really exciting for me to think through my experiences working in this industry for years, which frankly haven't been great, and think about how it is that I can change that, especially to grow a diverse organization that hopefully will cultivate strong, empowered leaders by not, frankly, breaking them down in their earliest or mid-cycle years. And so just thinking through policies of how we want to show and demonstrate respect and care for our employees. For instance, we are just codifying our time off policy, where it was important to me that people know that they have to take time off and that we don't do the burnout warrior thing where it's like, I didn't sleep for 10 days. I'm such a great employee. We don't do that. And so we're setting a minimum of 15 days off per year, including on cycle years, because people need to take time to find joy and not be at work and live their lives. And figuring out how it is that we encourage people to think about work. So instead of having office hours, we have meeting hours and people can design their schedules around those meeting hours. We have codified in our soon to be out manual that you will have a day without meetings and teams can figure out what that day is, but we need to respect it so that people can have a day of deep work and thinking about all the different ways in which I have either wanted or hoped to see or wondered, why is it hard to do this? Why is it hard to give people good health care? It's not. It's a choice. And so trying to deliberately make those choices, and frankly, one of the first choices was hiring a director of people and culture who could be my teammate and frankly help me learn more about how it is we could do this smartly was one of the the big first steps we've made. And I've been having a great time trying to build all of this out and, and bring it to the org as we grow. When you go out and you start a C3 or other type of nonprofit, the hardest thing I think is to find that funding. You did that within another organization. How's it going out on your own now? (laughs) It's going pretty well. I think for a first time organization, we are doing quite well. Um, We've been able to get over seven figures in commitments, which is really exciting in an off year when people are really burned out and really, really tired. I would attribute a lot of that to one, just having great supporters from my previous program who... Um, is that basically people re-upping with you? Some, yes. And we've also had some some new folks come into the fold and be really amazing advocates for us in the space and, and really help us get our name out there and get um, more people in the fundraising space aware of our organization and what we're trying to do. I would say this year doesn't come without its challenges. I, I think one thing any founder will tell you is that the boomer bust cycle of fundraising is really difficult to manage. We talk a lot about we want to run programs early, but you know donors have their own schedules and they also get tired and take summers off. And so it, it's just a difficult thing I'm starting to learn about and navigate more and how you manage that, that boom bust cycle, especially as an organization that is going to be moving towards always on programming. I just, I'm a weird person who really loves selling things. I get high selling things and I, I know I'm a weirdo like that. So (laughs) it's, it's been somewhat, it's been fun for me. So how much of a staff have you put together at this point? We have a staff of five and are rapidly growing. So in a week, we will be a staff of seven. Um, And by the end of September, probably a staff of 10. I would hope by the end of the year, we're going to be at about 15 to 20, all dependent on fundraising, of course, because we want to hit the ground running for 2022 and do have to grow rapidly, but it's going to be dependent on how and when the money comes to us. What are you going to do differently than you did for 2020? 
I am very excited for us to build out more specific messaging treatment lanes. We basically had two, but then divvied out by state. And so I'm really excited for us to be able to build out more lanes to include an Asian American focus practice as well, but then have each of our demographic treatments be separated out by state or region. So more specificity. I'm excited to do more long-term testing on what we call top of the funnel metrics. So trying to understand and measure, have we shifted attitudes or do these tactics that include just what would be analogous to persuasion treatments? Are those moving the hearts and minds of the unregistered? I'm really excited to do more internally and in-house on the data side because we'll have a very large subset of people who have identified previously as unregistered and moved to registered and people who have been identified as low turnout voters who are people of color. And so figuring out how we can use that past data for good in the space is also a really exciting challenge that's ahead of us that I think will have really strong impacts on what it means for us to build out models of people of color, because there are very few large subsets of data in the space of people who were previously unregistered who were people of color. So that's really exciting to me. I'm really excited to push the bounds of creative as well. We were able to do this last cycle, but I think with more time and earlier funding, we're really going to be able to come up with some different treatments that resonate with our audiences. And I, I don't know what that looks like quite yet. <laughs> However, being able to bring really strong creatives on board who think differently than what's typically in the political creative space is also really exciting to me. I'm really excited to prove that taking time off is great for the space and people can run an organization and give your employees time off in an election cycle and it'll work out for you. So many things, so many things. If you're like me at all, you are looking forward to this 2022 cycle with some apprehension. A lot of the the history of midterm cycles when you control the government are rough on the party in power. And there's so many challenges that are in front of the Biden administration and, and in the states and other things that are going on politically and Trump lurking out there with an attempt to come back and influencing things. How does what the cycle will look like affect how you target, how how you're going to play this game, which is not a game? Not too much. As a C3, we have our mission and set out. I would say the one way in which it does somewhat influence us is we know that there's going to be more online misinformation in highly competitive states. And so one thing that we are definitely looking to do is move our program into some of those states because we know that the best defense against misinformation is aggressive offense with correct information that will make people question the misinformation or disinformation that they see. And so we view these programs not just as good for, you know, the sake of expanding the electorate, but they are a a good way to help stymie the impacts of disinformation on the internet. And so that is one way in which I think it would definitely impact our, our programming, but the political who will win here or there is, is not a concern of ours right now. One thing that is different about how we got together for this podcast is last time I think I reached out to you, this time you had a publicist uh, reach out to me. So you've really professionalized in a certain way. How are you thinking about building this enterprise for the long term? Is this something where you're in for a cycle? What are your big aspirations for what you're up to? 
my big aspirations is for this organization to be viewed as the arbiters of knowledge and testing and information for digital registration and mobilization programs across the country for anybody. In much the same way that VPC has become that for male programs, I want Voter Formation Project to be that for the digital space, even though we specifically target people of color. I want to be the arbiter of information for this space, and I want to do it from a place of integrity. And frankly, a lot of I think my drive for doing this work comes not just for loving digital marketing, which I do, and not just for believing strongly in the impacts of democracy, but I almost feel that I have a capacity and therefore a responsibility to prove to this space that a young woman of color should have been trusted and cultivated from the beginning to do this work. I am one of the best at it, and we need to continue to invest And we need to continue to prop up people who come from marginalized communities who have a much harder time making it in this industry because these are the people and we are the people who can change how we do things for the better. So all that to say, there's a strong personal drive for this level of success. And it it may seem to some as somewhat egotistical, but it it also comes from a place of, of strong desire to see more people who look like me and who look like my colleagues in this industry, or at least in my organization, to be sitting in the same positions of power and privilege that have frankly been denied for decades. I don't think it's acceptable that I am the first Black woman to be running a digitally-only organization in 2021. That is mind-blowing to me. Are there a lot of digital-only organizations out there? Because there are a lot of Black women running political organizations and doing it very well. What are other digital-only organizations that you're in the field with? I would say if you look at, for instance, a priorities that went from not a digital-only organization, there is a shift to we are a digital-only organization. Obviously a huge amount of money and a big one, and which, which your ex-boss came out of. Yeah. <laughs> or we are a mostly digital organization. Um, there are certainly a lot of, I would say, mid-tier sized organizations, or frankly, the peers that I look to are people who run agencies. They are the people who are the digital consultants who are hired on campaigns. That is the level, and you do not see (laughs) many people running. You don't see many people of color running digital organizations, digital agencies. You don't see many people of color in their leadership. Frankly, we're now starting to see more women, white women, thank goodness, but those are the people I consider my contemporaries. Yeah. Does that put extra pressure on you, do you feel, like to to be a trailblazer of some sort? No, because I got here on accident. I like, I, I, I'm still confused some days. <laughs> so not really. I think if anything, it, it provides a drive, but not necessarily a pressure. If anything, I feel a pressure and responsibility to help as many people as I can. Oftentimes you... I, I find that it's so hard because there's just such a a volume of things that could be done. Um, And especially when I look back to like when I was Facebook in particular and I was just so burnt out, I would like to think I've tried to be like a warrior for people who are in this industry and in this space to advocate when people can't say things about what's happening that I, I kind of can. The testing of what you do seems like a crucial part of things. And there are a number of 
consultancies that do uh, that as their specialty, as well as uh, like the Analyst Institute, which houses a lot of talent in that area. To what extent do you want to keep this all internal on the testing side versus collaborate with external expertise, validators, professors that do things like this? How do you think about staffing that part of it? In terms of keeping it internal, do you mean like the results or do you mean? No, I mean the, like the, the process and the and the design and, you know, how you uh, design the experiments and so on and, and have some sureness about whether or not the results you're getting are properly tested. So I would say the teams are going to be internal, but we have had external validators. We are happy to share our data with mission-aligned organizations who are interested in just making sure that we're saying what we're doing. So for instance, we worked with a large network of voter registration organizations and shared all of our data directly with them so that one, they could also do analysis on the names, but two, they could pass those names on to field partners for follow-up. That's something we're always open to. But in terms of actually running the experimentation, Unless we are unable to, my strong preference is to bring it in-house because I think that allows for more creative collaboration across departments. And I think it allows for greater communication. And honestly, I don't want to get it twisted. I would say with some experiences with consultancies, of which I've had many, and I have been a consultant, so I'm pretty sure I have done this, you almost feel like you're at equal footing with your client in some ways, because you are the arbiter of knowledge. And sometimes that can make for, I don't want to say contentious, but just, you know, if there is a disagreement between the two, it can be a heated disagreement. I would much prefer to have those heated disagreements with people in my organization and not be arguing with a consultant ever. You referenced uh, kind of a community of voter registration organizations, and there are a lot, large and small how do you feel like you fit into that community and how do you want to? I feel like we're the young digital kid on the block <laughs> with really strong opinions. He shows up and says things sometimes that requires follow-up. I think we fit in well. I My hope would be for VFP to be an information source for other organizations. So as as we modernize our programs and as we are looking to do more experimentation with digital or organizations are starting to try and learn more about what it means to have this type of programming. um, I would love for VFP to be a go-to source of information for people to get the resources they need to run strong programs or strong experiments or be able to get some level of free technology if you're a super small group to get landing pages for your programs and whatnot. So my hope is that we are viewed as a collaborative, informative, helpful partner in doing digital work across the space and and that we will always keep it 100% with every single person that we work with because I think our integrity and our reporting and metrics and how we distribute information is really important. As a person of strong opinions and as an observer and a participant in the digital space on politics for quite a while now, I'm certain you have a number of opinions about how the field does its work. Any that you want to share about who you think is doing things the right way, who you think isn't, what reforms that you'd like to see, what are your thoughts generally about how we're doing stuff on the progressive side digitally? I think everyone's doing the best they can. However, there's certainly room for improvement in how it is that we think about 
digital writ large. I, I feel like right now the progressive space is stuck in this space of we think we figured out how digital needs to work for our campaigns and our organizations. And there's very little experimentation outside of the set of norms that we've established. And I don't quite understand why, except for financially driven reasons. So I actually just had this conversation the other day with um, another organization where Traditionally, we talk about digital being used for conversions, meaning getting people to sign up for something. If you are running programs to a specific area and you have a field program, why aren't you thinking about helping to source and bolster your field program through your digital messaging? Why isn't that we aren't considering really new methods of of creative. So I remember at Facebook, it took me a very long time to sell in the idea of vertical video. And now, thank goodness, it's pretty much endemic in how you consume social media on any platform, including YouTube. But as we get these new platforms, and as we get new ways to deliver information across existing platforms, it shouldn't be so hard for a digital person to be able to sell that idea in to a creative team or their manager in order to try something really different and new. And I understand that there are risks and Lord knows we've all had to deal with a legal team and a comms team who tells us no, but I think we need to start to adopt more people from digital and leadership. That way it's easier for us to be able to adopt new tactics quickly because the internet is always changing. I also think that there has been kind of a standard of assessing our programs. And I think the biggest way that or the biggest thing that I hope to see change that I think is slowly shifting. Earlier, I talked about this idea of a cost per net democratic vote, and it's racist. If we are talking about a cost per net democratic vote in a very, very large, diverse community, maybe sure. But at the end of the day, if we are assessing every single program, especially those that target people of color by this metric of cost per net democratic vote for a digital program, the way that I drive that cost down, the first thing I would do is to include white people in my segment targeting. It's easier to reach white people. You're saying. It's so much easier to reach white people. It's easier. It is cheaper. And until we start or looking at, at and assigning, yeah. right. Enough, there's enough of them out there that are easy to reach. Yeah. <laughs> right. So if we're going to be looking at programs that are targeting African-Americans and Latinas and, and Asian-Americans, et cetera, holding these programs to this very specific cost on this specific medium it's counterproductive. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be held accountable to metrics. I release all of mine. We should be. But I think that we need to start expanding our idea of what it means to run an effective program across different modes and across different demographics because it, it just is not the same. And certain programs are facing very different barriers to success from the algorithms themselves to the data sources that we use that impact that cost per treatment, especially on digital. Um, so that's, I think, one of my biggest my, my biggest gripes um, right now with just how it is that we have a common framework. And I can recognize someone could say, well, how should we assess it? And that, that's a very fair um, criticism. I think we need to look at bifurcated costs of like, what are we seeing for different treatments for different people to make sure that we are at least coming at it from an equity lens and not a this is the base minimum you have to reach for us to consider your program effective, especially on the C3 side. One part of digital that's not like just advertising, but is very common and important is both texting and emailing. And there's a ton of that. I think a concern among a lot of 
people and practitioners that some people are too aggressive or not ethical in how they use lists, how they burn them up, what the content is that they communicate, whether it's over the top, whether it's doomsday, you know, what do you see in that part of the digital space? I think there are some very unethical practices that are perpetrated by these same organizations that are creating this ecosystem of terrible content for fundraising. And, you know, while Mothership or even the DCCC will say it brings us money, it's unethical and it's bad. So we should stop. And I remember coming up in the space and learning how to write emails and there not being much discussion about this very alarmist tactic and it being just accepted as, oh, this is how we do it. It shouldn't be how we do it. And if we're going to be talking about trying to hold platforms accountable, for instance, for allowing people to do that, then we need to be able to name and say, like, these organizations are doing this and it's bad to the point where as consultants or as practitioners, we don't endorse anyone in the space hiring them or adopting these tactics. Again, I I tend to have no fear in naming what it is that I say. (laughs) And I don't think anyone in this space should hire consultants that they see doing these tactics or that they hear are doing these tactics. And at this point, everyone knows Mothership Strategies is the biggest perpetrator of the work. So let's not hire them anymore. It, it just, until they change their ways, I don't see the reason. To the point where there even was a Washington Post article about this years ago. I just don't understand why there isn't more of a collective groundswell of the public naming and the public saying, let's not hire folks who do this. A, a few episodes back, I had a a former consultant named Hal Mauchow, who was a pioneer in the space. One of the things that he wanted people to focus on is understanding that candidate-based persuasion advertising is not really working very well in a polarized environment where people are mostly voting party label. And he wanted people to, to start doing more advertising to convert people from one party to the other, or at least, you know, people who could be moved would be so much more valuable if you could do it because they tend to stay then with the, the party that they went to maybe for 20 years. Does that sound at all uh, to your practice year like something that ought to change or are you skeptical of that? I guess I'm just confused because isn't that persuasion advertising? Well, like- I think he's talking about advertising aimed at getting you to vote for a particular candidate versus trying to move you holistically from one party to another. There's a little bit, but there's not a ton of advertising based on party label trying to get you to move your registration from one party to another. It doesn't seem to be a lot. I mean, he cited the Lincoln Project as one of the few, like they were really advertising against the Republican Party and and I think had some effect among a certain class of Republicans who needed an excuse to extricate themselves. But there, but there weren't, there weren't a lot going on, say from the democratic party in a positive way to move, to say, look, this is what we're doing. These are the things we're passing that are going to help you. These are the things that the other side is voting for and against. We're right. They're wrong. Strong agree. I think there's a huge opportunity for these committees or larger organizations that are focused on bolstering of the Democratic Party to do what I would call more branding or persuasion about 
these are the things that we believe. This is what it means to be a Democrat. I think your values are aligned with ours. These actions are antithetical. Um, so I would definitely agree with that, um, that premise that we need to do a lot more offensive definition of what it means to have those values instead of constantly reacting to the offensive messaging that that paints Democrats as whatever have you, anti-freedom, a lot of it's just so loony. I, I can't get my head around it. But yes, like the best defense is a strong offense on the internet. There's no two ways about it. And so if you're basing your strategy on we're going to respond, 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 you're already losing. Game is over. You have not won. So I definitely agree with that premise that we need to do a lot more offensive definition, positive definition of of what it means to be a Democrat instead of just like seeding and saying, we're not socialists. Um, it's just not effective. So voter formation project is the new thing. The mission, is that something that could broaden over time? Or are you going to like keep a narrow focus on registration and underserved communities, people of color, et cetera? I would say for the next two years, we're pretty focused narrowly. Um, one question I get a lot is, are we going to start a C4? And the answer is no, not until my C3 is very fiscally sound. We're pretty strictly focused, especially for the next two years on our mission. But if we see, we we love to fill a gap, um, especially if it's a big one. So I think if we see an opportunity where we know that our skill set is particularly helpful and useful to the space to fill, we certainly will fill it. But I, I don't really have any more grand designs for now. It's a pretty big scope as it is. Is there a question that I should have asked you that I didn't? No, I think this was lovely. Well, it's always an honor to talk to you. I always enjoy our conversations. We've got to do this more often, Nathaniel. Well, I'm happy to do that. Uh, <laughs> uh, Tenda, anything else you want to say? No, just thank you so much for having me and giving me an opportunity to get that off my chest. I feel a lot better. Well, I look forward to seeing uh, what you do this cycle, and I hope that you make a big difference out there. Thank you so much. That was Tatenda Musapatiki. Tatenda is at voterformationproject.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.